Good morning. Um, it's been a little while since I've recorded for the podcast, um, but um, today I will not be doing like a live class. Um, so I decided to go ahead and just kind of record something. So I, I haven't recorded the past couple of weeks, but um, that's okay. The books that uh, chapters we still have, they're still really great, and I think this one's going to be really interesting. It's on page 170 of your book, and it's chapter 29, and it says, Does the Bible have errors or contradictions? And this is the book by Natasha Crane, Keeping Your Children on God's Side. And I um, think this is something that frequently comes up with people who kind of question what the Bible says. So it says, uh, my kids have been going through a phase in which they seem to love bad logic. In order to minimize the opportunities for getting into trouble, they often try to give vague or clearly worded answers in response to certain questions. As an example, here's a conversation I had with my daughter one morning this week. Honey, did you brush your teeth yet? No, of course not. Why, of course not. You know you have to do that every day. Well, Mommy, I did. Why are you asking? Because you just said you didn't. Now you're saying you did. Which is it? Mommy, you're not. You're just not understanding what I'm saying. I present this mind-numbing conversation to you as a calm d- dialogue, but in reality, my da- daughter's contradictions drive me crazy. She either brushed her teeth or she didn't, but both responses can't be true at the same time. Skeptics charge, the, charge that the Bible is filled with hundreds of such contradictions and factual errors. So factual error is a statement, statements that are verifiably untrue. One website called bibviz.com lays out 472 alleged problems from the skeptics' annotated Bible and conveniently offers a, slight, a slick graphic interface to further explore them. The site gets 30,000 to 500,000 page views every month. If the Bible really has hundreds of errors and contradictions, we would be hard-pressed to confidently trust that that it's God's Word. This undoubtedly is a very serious claim, but it can be difficult to address because there's no blanket answer that applies to every alleged problem. That said, there are some big-picture considerations that can help provide a framework for discussing this challenge with your kids. In this chapter, we'll, we'll look at those contradictions, first for alleged errors and then alleged contradictions. So she's saying that there are two types of alleged biblical errors. Um, it says there are two kinds of biblical errors necessary to understand. And, of course, she's putting errors in quotations um, or as people would say, rabbit ears. Um, one, alleged errors that aren't truly errors. And two, true errors. Alleged errors that aren't truly errors. Skeptics have a long list of supposed factual errors that they claim demonstrate the Bible is purely man-made book. The vast majority of these, however, are not actual errors. For example, in a parable about the kingdom of heaven, Jesus called the mustard seed the smallest of all seeds. Matthew 13, um, verses 31 to 32. So where you can find that, um, that information. But the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds. Many have claimed that's a factual error. However, Jesus was referencing the mustard seed in a proverbial sense. 
using an example to his audience of C. Excuse me, using an example familiar to his audience of a seed known for its smallness. He used a mustard seed. He used a mustard seed reference proverbially, proverbially in Matthew seventeen verse twenty as well. Another example of an alleged factual error comes from Leviticus chapter eleven verses thirteen through nineteen. God prohibited the Israelites from eating several kinds of birds, including bats. But bats are mammals, not birds. That sounds like a scientific error. However, the scientific classifications we have today didn't exist 3,500 years ago. The Hebrew word that's translated birds literally means flying creatures, which is, which is what a bat is. We can't retroactively impose our modern classification system on a group of animals and call it an error. There are many there are such, many such examples of alleged errors that aren't actual errors when further further historical linguistic or literary factors are taken into account. The overarching takeaway is that just because someone cries error doesn't mean there's actually an error. Do you do your research on individual issues and teach your kids how to do theirs? All right now we're getting into true errors. It says, recall from chapter 28 that the Bible we have today is based on copies that were made from original writings, originals we no longer have. Although many copyists took tremendous care when producing their work, the process did result in some known errors. So what I would contribute to that would be human error. As one example, 2 Kings chapter 8, verse 26 says that as a high... Ahaz, I'm not sure if I'm saying this right, A-H-A-Z-I-A-H, that he was 22 years old when he began to reign. 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 2 says that he was 42 years old. Obviously, these ages cannot both be correct based on the historical information in other passages. Most scholars believe that the text in 2 Chronicles is the one that's been transmitted in error. Given the existence of copyist errors, it is important to note here that Christians only affirm that the Bible's original manuscripts are inerrant, which can be asserted from copies with great, if not perfect, accuracy. It says three three keys to evaluating alleged contradictions. A contradiction exists when there is no logical way to reconcile two statements. Like my daughter, but like that my daughter both brushed her teeth and did not brush her teeth. When skeptics allege that the Bible is filled with such contradictions, they're not properly interpreting the passages in question. And here are the most key, important keys to evaluate, evaluating their claims. Number one, always consider the context. And just a side note, just based on some conversations that I have observed or read on you know facebook um of course you know people love facebook and nowadays people use facebook to argue with each other um there are some positive things there but um seems like there's just more negativity nowadays so um but i think that that you know looking at the context i think some people misinterpret context probably most often, just in my opinion. And maybe our author will say something different. Um, but I feel like 
you know, well, she has context as listed as the first thing she's talking about. And that doesn't mean that, you know, the others, you know, don't occur more often. But in my opinion, um, I feel like context is a big, one of the biggest things that people sometimes don't consider. It says, if you remember nothing else from this chapter, remember this. The most frequent reason for alleged contradictions. And it's so funny. I have not read this chapter beforehand. Um, so, and she was affirming what I was predi- thinking. So, that's that's always, you know, nice to, you know, feel that way. Um, if you remember nothing else from this chapter, remember this. The most frequent reason for alleged contradictions is that skeptics fail to consider context. Context of a passage within its chapter, within its within its book, within the Old, Old or New Testament, or within the Bible overall. For example, Romans 15 verse 33 calls God a God of peace. But Exodus 15.3 says the Lord is a man of war. These sound con- contradictory, but in the greater context of the Bible, they're not. We know that God desires peace, but in his justness, he punishes evil. Skeptics are often guilty of plucking isolated verses like these out of the Bible and claiming they contradict one another. But the con- but context is always is almost always the key to seeing their error. Two, interpret difficult passages in light of clearer passages. I'm going to say that again. Interpret difficult passages in light of clearer passages. Okay. Says there are quite a few passages in the Bible that contain cultural or historical references we don't fully understand. When paired with other verses, they sometimes seem contradictory. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 29 contains an obscure reference to baptism for the dead. We know from the clarity of other scriptures, however, that a dead person cannot be saved by someone else. And so the chapters that she's talking about is from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 and Romans chapter 3 verse 28 and then Romans chapter 6 verses 3 through 4. So it says, there's no reason to conclude that this is a contradiction. Always let clear passages interpret the more obscure ones. Number three, don't confuse descriptive and prescriptive passages. The Bible describes many historical events that it doesn't necessarily prescribe. And for prescribe, she has approve of. So, um, and I think that's really important to look at. Um, so describing means, of course, that, you know, the Bible describes this is what's going on at this time and prescribe means that it approves and there's, that's a clear distinction there. Skeptics often make the mistake of citing God's prohibitive command in one place, then pointing to another place where the command is, was violated as evidence of contradiction. For example, God clearly condemned human sacrifice in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, a prescriptive passage. But we read of King Azahai, King Ahaz sacrificing his son in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 3, a descriptive passage. And she says, see chapter 32. So I'm not sure if she's talking about chapter 32 of this book or... Or she's talking about chapter 32 of 2 Kings. 
Uh, so I'm going to look at 32 in this book and see what it says. Because we're almost there anyway. Okay, it's 34, 33, 32. Okay, so she's talking about the book that I'm reading right now, her book. Um, so chapter 32, it says, does the Bible support human sacrifice? So I guess she's, you know, alluding to a future chapter. All right. Um, so these three special considerations when evaluating alleged gospel contradictions. Okay, so she has her important keys to evaluating um, a skeptic's claims to contradictions. So the first one was um, considering context, um, interpreting difficult passages in light of clearer passages. Um, and so basically with that one, number two, looking at, you know, passages, basically it's important to read the entire Bible, not just certain parts. Um, so, because there, there could be a passage that, you know, discusses the difficult passages that they're referencing to. So, uh, that would be two. Um, the third key, don't confuse descriptive and prescriptive passages. Okay. Now, she's on three special considerations when evaluating alleged gospel contradictions. Because the gospels, so, okay, when we think about the gospels, um, you know, this is, this is part of the New Testament, okay? Because the Gospels are based on eyewitness accounts of the same events, so these events are Jesus' life and resurrection, so see chapter 27. We've already done 27. Um, I don't think I recorded that one, but, um, if you're interested and you, you can purchase the book or you can, um, just let me know, and I would be happy to record it for you. Um, okay, so it says, There are some contradictions that are unique to these four books. One, authors sometimes present events in a thematic rather... In, sorry. Authors sometimes present events in a thematic rather than chronological order. Okay, so it says the Gospels recount many of the same events, but often differ in different order. For example, the temptations of Jesus are sequentially different in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. These, the two sequences technically contradict each other because they cannot both be correct. However, authors often write thematically rather than chronologically for different narrative purposes. Most Bible scholars believe Matthew's account is sequential and Luke's is thematic. Two, says partial accounts are not necessarily contradictory accounts. When eyewitnesses recount details of an event, they may each reference a different part of it. Of course, we know that from today's time. That still holds true. On the surface, those varied accounts can seem contradictory, but a closer investigation shows they are simply different parts of the same story. For example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record different responses from Peter when Jesus asked him who Peter thought he was. So in Matthew, uh, Matthew was saying, Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Mark, um, he said that Peter said, you are the Christ. In Luke, um, he said, Peter said, the Christ of God. Okay, so well, those are different, but it says the responses are not identical, but they're also not contradictory. 
Mark and Luke likely were likely recounting a partial version of the fuller response we see in Matthew. Okay, so um, this is number three. Different perspectives are not necessarily contradictions. In chapter 27, we looked at a homicide detective, um, J. Warner Wallace's approach to evaluating the reliability of eyewitness accounts in the Gospels. As we saw, it's expected that eyewitnesses corroborate, I hope I said that right this time, (laughs) um, each other, but they do not provide identical details. If witnesses describe an event in exactly the same way, investigators often question their honesty. Similarly, we should expect the Gospels to differ to some degree as a result of varied perspectives. One major example is of this is in the resurrection accounts, which diff- differ on several points. For example, they differ on the number of women at the tomb. Matthew said two, Mark said three, and Luke said five, and John said one. The messengers at the tomb. Matthew said one angel, Mark says men, Luke says men, and John says two. And whom the woman slash women told. Matthew says that the women told the disciples. Mark says no one. Luke says the disciples and others. John says only Mary Magdalene told the disciples. Several other differences have been noted as well. Many possible harmonizations of the accounts have been proposed. Though we can't say with certainty how all the details fit together, we do know that the difference between the accounts is consistent with the varied perspectives to be expected from eyewitnesses. The central truths that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and appeared to many are clear in each. Okay, last part. Big claims with little investigation. Skeptics consider it a given that the Bible has loads of errors and contradictions. Those are in quotations. um, But often haven't actually investigated them. When you do take the time to properly investigate, I'm sorry, to properly evaluate the passages in question, there are good reasons to believe they're complementary. It's important to work with your kids on how to do those evaluations rather than simply telling them there are no errors or contradictions in the Bible. Giving them them the framework for understanding the nature of alleged discrepancies empowers them to confidently make the evaluations themselves. So, and I I think that's important for our youth today because I I feel like social media and the internet, we, we don't know what to believe on there. And I think, you know, they need to be reading the Bible themselves and, you know, understanding where the where this people who would be considered a skeptic, you know, where they are finding that because there may be an interaction they have with someone. Um, and our children need to be able to intelligently and eloquently explain some of these contradictory claims because oftentimes people, you know, and we saw this in earlier chapters, some skeptics claim that people who are Christians are not as intelligent Um, Not everyone, but that is an issue that this book addresses. And we need to make sure our kids have the knowledge 
from the Bible and how to inter- how to read the Bible and how to interpret what these verses mean. And uh, that's just something we need to do. So um, the next chapter is, does this Bible support slavery? And I think that is going to be super interesting to read. Um, so we'll save that one for next week. And probably what we will do... Um, for the month of December, guys, we will just take a little pause from this book, and I would like to um, order, and I can never say this gentleman's names. So I apologize. Uh, Max, I think it's Lucadio, Lucado. I, I can't say the last name. I'm so sorry. I failed you as, as a speech therapist. Um, but I would like to order his book because of Bethlehem, and I think it would be something that would get our hearts ready for the Christmas season. And um, I'm going to maybe speak with our secretary about getting us some copies. So if you would like one from um, church, just let me know. And, of course, I will be reading from that, and we'll put it on the podcast as well. Um, For those of us that can't be in person right now due to the pandemic. So I hope you enjoyed this chapter, and we'll go ahead and have prayer. Lord, I'm so thankful for this the season of of being thankful and just help us to be more thankful throughout the year. And even though this has appeared to be such a dark year and all the things that have been going on in the world, I think that it all just continues to point to you, God, and who you are and how, you know, as a nation and as a, as a world, you know, we need to seek your face and seek what your will would be. And thank you for this lesson. Um, Just help it to empower us, through this week and empower um, any children or anyone that we may come into contact with. Help us to have, you know, the words and the courage to speak intelligently and effectively on your behalf. And just thank you for this holiday week. Please keep everyone safe and healthy. And in your name we pray. Amen.